You have to get the concept of partnership to be an effective nonprofit leader. You can't and should not do it alone, especially true when it comes to development. I often talk about development as a team sport with the development director as kind of like this quarterback. Why, you may ask, is the executive director not the quarterback? Well, first off, the ED is already a quarterback of like the entire organization. And when it comes to fundraising, I think of the ED as kind of the star player and that the quarterback makes the call about when to hand the ball to that star player or MVP. So today I'm, I'm chatting with my friend Kishana Palmer, and we're going to dig into this partnership between the development director and the executive director and how to make it work. Our focus is on a particular situation that both of us have seen, like a lot, a lot, a lot. You are the development director, and your executive director does not like to fundraise or thinks it's actually your job. Now, we have stories for days. The ED, who doesn't really like rich people very much. EDs who commit to making the ask and then don't. The ED who feels like guests will feel awkward if they make a specific pledge for support at that house party. And yes, we are talking about the development director and the executive director, but we could also be talking about the quarterback's relationship with any ambassador whose appetite for fundraising is low. Bottom line, how do you get the boss to do something they really don't seem to want to do? That seems like a mighty fine topic, don't you think? Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Kashana Palmer is an international speaker, trainer, and coach with two decades of experience in fundraising, marketing, and talent management who helps leaders create high-performing teams. Kashana is the CEO of Kashana & Co., an organizational development firm focused on helping everyday leaders live well and lead well. Her firm's work centers on equity and social justice and practical solutions for today's organizations. She is the founder of The Rooted Collaborative, a global community focused on the growth and development of women leaders of color in the social sector. She's the host of the podcast, Let's Take This Offline, an adjunct professor at Baruch College, a board source, certified governance trainer, and the list goes on, full bio, in the show notes. When an organization wants to grow, find and retain people on their team, raise money, and more, she is your fairy godmother they have on speed dial. I like, I've never seen fairy godmother in a bio before. Her work isn't limited to organizations. She also coaches high-performing leaders. Good morning, fairy godmother. <laughs> Or like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> you can't see her, but there's like a wand and there might be like a little fairy dust. All, Maybe, all of that. <clears throat> How are you this morning? I am well. I am well and happy to be here with you. How are you? I'm good. So let's dig in. Here's something I've been thinking about. So there are folks who do not like to fundraise. And we'll talk about why that can be in a second. But... How is it that they become executive directors? I, th I, th 
I think I get at the answer when it comes to founders. But let's let's set those superheroes aside, right? They, they they're they're just like hungry to make something happen. They're a founder, but how does somebody become an executive director who actually doesn't have an appetite for fundraising or doesn't like it? So I think that it happens in a couple of ways. So and they're always sort of like giggle worthy to me. So the first way <laughs> is just time. They've just been in seat for a long time, and then the, the role opens up, and they're next in line. And there's not a conversation about what an executive director really is charged with doing in the organization. And so that person just continues to carry forward whatever their area of expertise is into that role. And they sort of figure that somebody else is going to have to do it. I just don't like it. That's just not for me. Yeah. And there's not an articulation of what the role really is each time there's a new person in seat so that there can be expectations that are level set around what an executive director is supposed to do. So that's one way to me. The other way is folks don't realize that that is actually their job. <laughs> oh, is that like, the Google-worthy part? Like, correct. Like, They're like, yeah. I don't... No one told me that I'm supposed to raise money. And if the board is charged with creating a job description, they didn't go to a search firm to do it themselves, et cetera, the probability could be high that that wouldn't be in the job description especially if the previous executive director did not do that in their role or struggled with it. So I think that there's a couple of ways that folks just sort of stumble into that and they think sort of like, well, somebody else is supposed to do it. I would add to that, I think, that oftentimes people come into executive director jobs from program jobs. That's exactly right. Right? And so that they have a fire about fire in their belly about the program work and about the, obviously the mission of the organization. But the board says, well, we need a lead program person to run the organization and the development director can handle the fundraising. I know you've never done it before. You don't like it. Like oftentimes boards let executive directors off the hook in that way. Off the hook. Mm -hmm. The other thing, the other thing I think is useful and to see what you think of this. Now, I happen to be an executive director that was hired with zero fundraising experience, none. I had no fundraising experience. In fact, the finalist for the gig, the other finalist had fundraising experience and the organization was in financial trouble. And amazingly, the board did not hire the person with fundraising experience, but hired me. So there's also a thing about experience versus attributes, don't you think, Kishana? Like, Absolutely. My board saw attributes in me that I was an excellent communicator and they had done their homework on me that I was kind of a person that was in the relationship business. So when you're looking for an executive director, with you don't necessarily have to have fundraising experience, don't you think? I think that's true, but I think you definitely have to have an appetite for people and an appetite for building relationships and an appetite for, for making sure that those relationships have purpose. And so lots of folks get into the business of just having folks in their digital Rolodex to have them. We're like collecting people. But you've got to be able to action your network to different outcomes over time and particularly in service of your organization. And so you can't just be building relationships just all willy-nilly. And they don't have to be transactional either. But there has to be that dance between being able to leverage connections, communications, and relationships that you are building and sustaining to a particular end. And I think that executive directors who are skilled in being able to do that can then pick up the block and tackle, as I think about it, of what it means to actually raise money. But if they don't have an appetite for people, an appetite for people and moving people to a particular purpose, 
then I think they're going to struggle with fundraising. That's sort of where I've seen it. And I think that if there's an openness to understanding that there's art and science to this and that the science is learnable, right. teachable, adjustable <laughs> uh, to your style and to the outcomes that you're seeking, then it makes it a lot easier for executive directors to find comfort. But I think that because there's so many things in most executive directors basket every day and things are spilling over in terms of responsibilities, it's easy to let that thing just topple right on out and hope that your development director is the one that catches it. So Kashana, before I go to this next question that I have, I want to just grab something that you said. You talked about not just collecting people, but moving them towards a particular purpose. Tease that out for me. And if I'm a board chair or I'm a head of a search committee, do you have any ideas about how I might know that I've got one of those people as opposed to just the person who collects names? So I think that years ago, before we were, before we could do digital sleuthing um, in a real way, it had been a lot harder to do. But now I think that board members can be pretty savvy. I do not believe in back channel references. I think that that there's a whole other conversation around equity when it comes to that. But I do think it's good to see connective tissue. So these are the things that I'd be looking for. Um, is this particular candidate out in their work? Are they on panels? Do they attend conferences? Are they in conversations that have some visual cues? Have they co-written articles? Like, have they actually participated as a thought leader in the work? Because you can't do that in a silo, unless you want to sit in a cafe and write all day about you and pontificate about your thoughts. But if you want somebody who's going to be like really building relationships, can you see some visual cues that they are out in the world doing just that? And I'm not talking about name droppers, but folks who you actually go, okay, they went to grad school together or they were in a fellowship together or they did this executive program together or they spoke on this conference together. Like those are the types of things that board members can look for when they're seeing like, is this a person who's actually been moving in the community and space that they're in so that people know who they are? So they have that like, know, and trust factor. So let's assume, and you have been a fundraiser, so you've probably been mm -hmm. in this very situation. Mm -hmm. You're interviewing for development director position. How do you learn about the fundraising appetite and prowess of the executive director of that organization? And then as a follow-up, do you take the job if you find out that maybe you don't have the strongest partner at the top of the heap? So I have been in a unique position over the course of my career. So a couple of things, I moved right into the chief development role pretty early in my career. So I spent most of my career in the C-suite. Um, and then the second piece is, except for two roles, I always worked for a founder. Mm. And so I had a very unique perspective in that those, they were typically non-traditional fundraisers who didn't believe in more traditional fundraising tenants until we got to a point in our growth where they're like, oh my gosh, you know, we've outgrown our, our, our space and we've got to do this thing fast. When I was interviewing in those roles, what I was looking for is, are you going to deputize me in the relationships that you have so that I can ex exponentially grow those relationships? Because typically when I'm working with founders, those relationships are like the, my little baby. And they want to hold them very tight, very, very tight. Just hold on to the baby. So therefore are not necessarily looking at growing the relationship in a way that's going to help that particular donor partner really maximize their giving potential in your mission or how your organization can leverage that partnership for growth and mission. It typically doesn't happen, right? Because folks don't want to press their people. 
are you going to deputize me is the question that I'm thinking about. Are you going to go into a room and say, Kashana is the person who's going to be taking over this relationship. She is in charge. She knows what she's doing. I'm going to hand this over to her. And when I need to take it back from her, when she needs to give it back to me, she will. Like, are we having that? Can we do that? So that's one. I've missed the, I've missed the mark a couple of times on that. I just want you to know, Joan. I thought okay. I had it and then I did not have it. Then in more institutional organizations that I wasn't working for a founder, but I was working for an executive director, then my question to them was about what they love about being with board members, with donors, with folks in the community, and what they would run for the hills from. And that's what I asked. That's how I asked the question. Like, what is making you run for the hills? Because that, to me, is a good indication of, do they just like to chat? But the chat is never going to get to a close. (laughs) So therefore, I need to pull you out of that relationship very early and bring you in for the chat later because you are not going to close it and I need to close it. Like, how do I navigate that? So those are some of the questions that I would kind of dig in on just like what brings them joy and then what made them like want to hide in the covers. So to me, a good development director candidate for a role should really want to be able to tease out the type of relationship that their executive director has to money and the executive director's willingness to partner with them. And that deputizing question is actually a really critical one. Um, There are places, Joan, where I totally did not get that right. I thought I did. I asked the right question. They said the right things, but it was not correct. And so what was the impact of that for you and your ability to be successful and in your retention in that job? I was not successful. I was able to raise money fast because I'm very, very good at building relationships, but they felt much more transactional than relational. Why? Because I didn't carry those relationships forward with me to other organizations. So that's one. And then the second thing is that I ended up quitting. Right. Because you cannot be successful in a role uh, over time when you do not have the support of your executive director and support for each of us looks different. And so I think that um, for development directors and EDs who are listening to this, you have got to be able to clearly articulate what does support look like for me? Bingo. When I think about my right hand, when I think about my left hand, what does that look like for me? And am I having that conversation with my development director, ED? Am I having that conversation with my ED development director? And if that's not happening, the probability is high that y'all are well-intended, but the road to hell was paved with good intentions. And so we have to get clear on what that, intended impact is going to be. Yeah. Deputize is a, is a word, but there's a, there's, that's also code for empower. That's a code yes. for, I trust you. I trust you. I need you to own these relationships with me. I need the organization to own these relationships. Mm-hmm. And it is a fundamental message of a lack of trust that drives, I think, development directors away from organizations where key donors are held close to the chest by either executive directors or board members, for that matter. Board members. This whole notion that institution having a relationship belong to the organization it does seem to be a, a path that many people are not far enough on the journey on, you know? Absolutely. So I can see, I certainly have met executive directors that are not good at fundraising because they don't like it. Are there folks who can be good at it and really learn to enjoy it? And have you ever worked with an executive director in that kind of way? 
Absolutely. I think that anyone can learn how to raise money because raising money is really about inviting people on a journey to activate something you both really care about. And people want to be co-stars. Let's let that's why we love the Oscars and the Emmys. And we lo- we just love it, don't we? And I don't even mm-hmm. know if we love best actor or actress most of the time. We typically get really excited about best supporting because right. those are the folks who really held that movie up, not the yep. star. Each of us, I believe, really wants to be a co-star. We want to be a supporting actor, actress in a role. And when you're thinking about mission, we really want to be able to see communities where we live and work thrive. So any executive director, any person to me can raise money if they first understand that that is really what the job is, helping others and inviting others in to activate on something they care about and get off the sidelines. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> what I um, I, I'm only laughing because I, I if, if I had been interviewed, I think I might have said exactly the same, the exactly same thing. Not that that makes it the right answer. It just actually totally was hilarious for me. Um, so think about this one for a minute. Let's talk. You said something earlier about somebody's relationship to money. I know that's at the heart of some of challenges we face as development folks. I'm always struck by how much kids teach us about the joy of fundraising. And I know you have kids and, you know, Mm -hmm. I had little kids once that are now just very larger kids. (laughs) (laughs) And, but like, we all have this experience, whether it was our own kid or neighbor or niece, nephew, they come charging home from school. They're excited as all get out about raising money to find a cure for some disease that their classmate yes. Deja has, and and you're yes. so proud of them. And you cannot get your checkbook out fast out enough. Fast you you enough. can't, right? Yes. Where's Venmo? I got to send it now. But someplace between that, right, where you are so proud that your own kid is fundraising, right? Somewhere between that and adulthood, the thrill, the pride about raising money gets stomped out of people. It and does. I think it, it's all about this sort of relationship between grownups, and I'll use, I'm using air quotes if you can't see me. Yep. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I love it. Talk to me a little bit about your, you know, observations about adults' relationships to money and how it soils fundraising. Oh, gosh. I think that, and this is something that I've had to navigate as a fundraiser. So I'll bring my lived experience. So I'm a Black woman. I'm a Black Caribbean American. I am first generation American. I am first in family. I am the only, I'm the oldest girl, right? So I'm bringing all these these things to the table. So that's responsibility and loyalty and fidelity and obedience and assimilation. Like I can just keep going, 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 right? right? And then my parents were work are retired now, but working class folks who really found a way and made one for themselves when they moved here. And so there was lots of conversation about money, but it wasn't from a perspective of anything other than survival. Right. And so it shouldn't surprise you then that for quite a number of my fundraising roles, I went into organizations that were in survival mode. Interesting. And that were like trying to make it from payroll to payroll and that they hired me to help get them out of that, that, I want to say as an aside, that's really not your job as a development director. Hello? But I didn't know that then. 
And so my own money story drove me to believe that that was the job I had to do. When I was a kid, I've always raised money. So I even went to to college on a scholarship for service. And Uh so as a kid, I was the one who could always figure it out. I was like, oh, well, we need to go to the gospel choir camp and we don't have any money. We know what we can do, raise it. And so I would be like, "Let who are the adults that can give us money? How much adults do we need to ask? And who do we need? So the reason I'm bringing those two points together is I never lost the fire to ask anybody for anything. Right. But what I didn't learn was the abundance of asking. And so that meant that early in my career, I wouldn't ask for large enough gifts. Oh, I see. Okay. I was just trying to get us over the hump for the next day. How much do we need to get a payroll? A hundred thousand? Okay, great. Like I was doing what I needed to get us to the place that I knew we had to go to, but not to help us thrive. So I had to change my entire outlook and perspective. And it's a work in progress on how I view money so that I could invite in how I believe now, which is that there is always more. And so how do we figure out how to invite people into what we're doing such that they believe and they have the experience that they're a part of it so that there is more. And so I think we lose that as adults because we get into a very performative, head down, you know, individualistic, individual achievement uh, type of mentality. And that shows up in how we talk to folks about money and about resources, particularly for our organizations. The other thing I think about, and you talk about individualistic, I also think that in the sector, we also get very hell-bent on being competitive and winning. Yes. Right? Yes. And board members who their relationship with money is whoever has the most wins. Right? And Absolutely. Uh, right. And, and I'm not saying that's that's the exclusive terrain of board members, by the way. But there's a mindset that whoever has the most toys wins, right? And so, you know, you have organizations that will push to raise more and more money and that that is what they see as a metric for success when they mm-hmm. haven't actually really been paying much attention to holding the organization accountable for what other success metrics might look like. Oh, I don't know, like impact of their programs, for example. Correct. (laughs) Correct. Uh, Health and longevity of their team members. I mean, the number of things. Yeah, any number of things. I'm always so fascinated by that when I talk to executive directors and development directors, because a lot of the work that I do around coaching, I end up having to, to say, okay, now it is time for family therapy, because clearly we've got to chat together. Um, and a lot of times it's really around metrics. Like what are your key performance indicators that do not have to do with cash? If your development director is only focused on revenue and there are no non-financial goals for that human, they are going to burn out and or their team members are going to hate them. Like just, just saying. Well, so the we other, have to have some balance. the other metric actually, I, that is about relationships as opposed to mm-hmm. transactions that I think is often missing from fundraising dashboards is current donor retention. Yes. When my nonprofit leadership lab, we do a fundraising boot camp. And one of the first places that we ask folks to look is lapsed donors. Why are they lapsed? Right. Everyone chat magically assumes, you know, well, they're lapsed because they're mad at us for something. Like as <laughs> if you are the center of the universe, dude. Of the right? universe. <laughs> and so... 
Lab donors are the lowest hanging fruit because most often life has gotten in their way and the donors just simply just focused on their lives, right? But one of the things, you can hit your development goals, but you're actually losing current donors left and right and just continuing to bring in new donors. Like that's not success. And so- you know, for boards and even a development director is looking at the data that supports your development efforts, even on the cash side is important, don't you think? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Just for for the benefit of our listeners, Kashana, what kinds of organizations have you done fundraising for? So I have have folks who, um, who can put your, some of your really good advice in context. Okay, so I have been all over the map. So I've worked for teeny tiny organizations that were local. So I worked for our maternity home in Charlotte, uh, where I lived there. I've worked for large national organizations, so Big Brothers, Big Sisters, things like uh, that. So I was in the top 10 affiliates, uh, raising money, did a huge capital campaign, won awards, all the good stuff. Understand the whole affiliate to national, you know, tension that sometimes exists uh, in associative bodies. And so sometimes. Sometimes, like I said, that. <laughs> like every day, um, <laughs> like every day, I work for really, really large uh, regional organizations doing social safety network, and I've worked for social ventures. And those are the organizations that on day one have no money, on year one have five million, and then we're doing a growth campaign. They just like spring up overnight and raise all of this money and scale. And so that was a different type of fundraising because that was a kind where you really had to like walk a tightrope of transaction to relationship because of the speed at which we needed to be able to bring revenue into the organization. And it really pushed and pulled me on what I learned and what I understand about building relationships, about how fundraising happens, about how donor retention happens, because that's just not the way those types of organizations really raise money. And they don't really care about the like, this is how we do it. They are not having a Montel Jordan song this moment. <laughs> they were like, oh no, newfangled ways over here. We don't care about what you know. So I've been all over the map. So from $2 million organizations to $25 million organizations to scaling organizations from six to 30. So it just depended on where I was recruited for, but the commonality to all these organizations. So my, my thread that I pulled is that each of these organizations was at a point of inflection. They were ready to grow or scale. And I came in at the time of growth or scale. Yeah. And and that's something that intentional on your part, that that's that's something that fuels you is taking an organization, up-leveling an organization. Absolutely. So I don't know if I would be able to go into a sustaining situation. Maybe now, now that my kids get ready to go to college, I'm like, you know what I don't need to do? I don't need to rebuild anything. Like we don't need to burn it down now. (laughs) Uh, but most of my career, it was like, oh, yeah, the building's burning and you need, oh, I have this one cup of water? Okay. You know, so. <laughs> when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit with Kishana about some prototypes of executive directors Ooh. that she has landed on and how you might see your own boss or your own self in those prototypes. And we'll be right back. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com 
slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. We are having a chat with Kashana Palmer. And Kashana is an international speaker and a trainer and a coach. She's got experience running in fundraising, marketing, talent management. She's all about teams. She's, you can get her talking about multi-generational teams and you'll learn a lot. And she runs a firm that focuses on helping everyday leaders live well and lead well. I like that line quite a lot. I like this line a lot, too, that when an organization wants to grow, find, and retain people on their teams, raise money, and more, she is the fairy godmother on speed dial. All right, fairy godmother, let's um, let's go to um, let's go to these boss categories you've come up with. I like them a lot. Yes. Uh, they're, prov- they're fun. <laughs> they provide a great framework for how to navigate what should be a terrific partnership. And I really don't want to lose this notion. It uh-huh. is, in my mind, one of the things that sets the nonprofit sector apart Absolutely. from the for-profit sector is that partnerships are inherent, whether that's the ED and the board chair, whether that's the ED and the development director, whether that is the director of finance and the treasurer of the board, the partnership is the order of the day in a nonprofit. And that this is especially true between a development director and an ED. You have a number of them. I thought maybe we could just play around with three of them for the purposes of this conversation. We have the categories are the I built this thing leader, the case of the touchy boss, and the case of the let me know how it goes boss. So I want to take them one at a time. Uh, you get to describe the profile briefly, and then some actionable strategies a development director can consider for how to make that partnership, uh, how to improve and make that partnership work. So I'm going to go with, I'm going to take, I built this thing leader for 400, Kashana. Tell, <laughs> t- tell us the profile. And then yes. if I'm if I'm the development director, how might I navigate that relationship? So I built this thing, leader. Those are my founders du jour. Those are the folks who are like, this is my baby. You know, they did it in their living room or they in their kitchen table and they felt like they were the ones who created this organization and they built it from the ground up. And so there's a lot of ownership and attachment to the program, the mission, the people, because it's theirs. And I think a lot of executive directors who fall into this category don't realize the moment you put your paperwork into the federal government that says you are a 501c3 entity and you are requesting this designation, it belongs to the community, not to you. The end. Goodbye. And so it is now public good. It does not belong to you, but they don't get that message because it doesn't come with your confirmation letter. And so as a development director coming into this organization, number one, you have really got to decide if that type of human is who you want to work with, because you are going to have to be prying things from Nicole had dead hands. And so what I would suggest you do in that situation is really understand what motivates and what drives that executive director Mm -hmm. outside of the mission. Mm. What are the things that are overwhelming them? And do you actually have complementary competencies to be able to make their load lighter? I guarantee you that that director has wanted to let go of things, but maybe a time or two or three or four, 35, has (laughs) tried to delegate responsibilities, I call it, hand off the sticky notes to someone else that didn't go that well. And so now they don't want to do it at all. 
So they want things to be perfect because it's their baby. So understanding that means you've got to have more conversations with them about what success looks like. And you've got to be able to point out if the ball of success keeps moving down the field. And so I think that if you're able to do that to a degree of satisfaction for you, then I think you will have a higher degree of success working with the, I built this thing myself. Uh, But it's a tough role to be in. Working for founders are not for the faint of heart. You have really have to be built for tough uh, in order to be able to navigate that because it is a very personal experience to most founders beyond the good that the organization is designed to do. And they might be too close to the organization to be able to take a step back and really kind of um, see the bigger picture. I think that, do you think there's a difference between an early founder and a founder who's been around for a dog's age? I think an early founder is eager. And if they're doing this well, they really want people to come along with them on the journey. So I think that they still have a very high degree of ownership, but the probability is higher that if you have a good relationship, if, if they like you, that the likability factor, we, we just, we should talk about that, Joan. Like, let's be honest. It's not just your skills. People need to really like you. And totally. that's where bias comes in. That's where folks, that's where we trip up and get into trouble uh, sometimes because if we don't have that like me factor, that like me bias um, kicks up pretty high. But let's assume that you all have a good working relationship and you have complementary styles and you can find that out in your interview process from some of the questions you're asking and y'all ask one another. Then an early stage founder, I think, um, is really looking to grow that team. And so you'll have a lot more responsibility, a lot more places to stretch and to grow. A late stage founder, somebody who's been in seats since Jesus was in the manger. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know. Okay, are we waiting for the return or not? I'm just saying. And so that person has been doing things a certain way to a certain degree of success. Oh, yeah. Whether it's small as success or big as success for a long time. And so you think you're coming in, bringing fresh ideas, cutting edge innovation, unless that person is seeking it because they are self-aware enough to know that they've got to be able to grow and shift as the organization matures, oh, that's going to be a tough one. And we see that that. with lots of long institutional organizations that have had founders or long-serving CEOs in seat. Yeah, I I think it is the area in which a prospective development director has to tread most carefully. Is that especially if, let's say that person's been in their seat 15 years, right? How much longer are they going to stay you have to think about that as well, right. is are they going to overstay? Have, do they have a sense of their own, I call it their professional expiration date, right? Yeah. In their heads. And really trying to understand in that interview process how much of that individual's identity is wrapped up in that organization. Mm-hmm. Founders who can really understand that the key to the legacy of what they have built rests in their ability to institutionalize the relationships they have, and that not doing that can, in fact, put the organization at great risk. Mm-hmm. Like that will mean something to many Absolutely. founders. There are founders for whom they don't, they actually don't buy that. And then let's not get started on the boards who 
put the founders as the board chair or on the board. That can, that's a whole nother conversation yeah, for another day. That's a whole nother train wreck. All right, let's, I'm going to, uh, uh, so my next category, uh, Kishana, I would like the touchy boss for 800. So welcome to the micromanagement show. Those are my folks who have to have that's a really, have you, have you thought about recording that song? Cause that is really, really, that was really good. I didn't know that you were a talented songwriter. (laughs) So these are my folks who are my heavy micromanagers. Y'all don't mean no harm. You really don't. And yet you're harming everyone. Why? Because you are so focused on having your hands in every pot that you are not operating in your zone of genius or excellence as an executive director. So what it shows up as is wanting to be in on every decision, even though you should not be the decision maker in every aspect of your organization as an executive director. You want to be informed of everything that's going on. You want to be CC'd on every donor conversation. You just want to be in on the stuff. And what that says to me as a prospective development director Big, flashing, red lights, trust issues, trust issues, trust issues. So if you decide as a development director that you are going to take a role where you recognize, and and executive directors will tell you in their conversation that they like to be in stuff, then I hope that you have processes that allow you to be able to manage that. Here's one of them. Micromanagers need information, so you better be an oversharer. So that you don't drive yourself mad, you've got to have systems that do that. So do you have a cascade of information? Do you have working cadences that you can create that are daily, weekly, monthly, et cetera, that become routine for you, but that allow your executive director to feel like they're a part of what's happening so that you can push them out? So that is one of the things that you're, if you don't have that level of discipline or rigor in your own systems and processes as a development director, you will struggle in a situation with a touchy boss because they need more time, more information, and you have to plan for that so that you are keeping them in the loop and informed so they can stay out your business so you can do what you need to do. So that is what I would say for the touchy boss. And all of us have been that boss and have worked for that boss. What's at the root of somebody being touchy? Why don't, you call, me- why don't you call it the micromanaging boss? Because the song is so good. The micromanagement <laughs> show. I don't know. I think I... I think they're touchy because they don't necessarily, I don't, I, very few people who actually micromanage heavily would, would say, you know what I am? A micromanager. They would describe themselves as I like to be involved. Yes. I like to have my hands on things. I like to put my touch on it. And so I left it that way because folks, that's the way lots of folks would identify themselves because it sounds nicer, right? It doesn't sound like what it is. You don't trust your people. And further, let me go further. You don't trust yourself. Because at the root of it is, if you're the one who did the hiring of your development director, of your program director, of your HR director, et cetera, and yet you have to have your hands in every meeting, you don't trust your own hiring decisions as an executive director. And that is a different conversation. Agreed. Agreed. All right. So uh, we've talented the, uh, I built this thing, yep. the touchy boss. Yep. And last we have the, let me know how it goes, boss. Who's that? These are my folks. This boss is tired, right? They have been doing things for a while and they have officially abdicated the throne. This is where delegation goes way too far, okay? okay? So it's one thing to delegate to your team and to make sure that the folks that you hire 
have agency and responsibility over their work streams. It's another to take your hands off the wheel and hope the car goes in the direction you want it to go. And so the, the let me know how it goes are like, I don't want anything to do with that. And so you just go on and handle it. Clue me in later. They really do not want to be involved for whatever their experiences are. And so how that shows up for a development director who's in seat is that they have a heck of a lot of responsibility, I think, outsized responsibility on their shoulders. And they don't have direction on the top line vision for what the exec director wants because that person has already abdicated those responsibilities and basically left the throne. The seat is open. And so back to the beginning, when we first started talking, Joan, you said, you know, like an executive director, like you are the MVP, which means you can't run off and go sit on the sidelines and, and drink Gatorade. That is not the way this works. So if you're a prospective development director, you've got to be able to ask questions about how they manage, how they lead, what they think about responsibility, how they share responsibility or release responsibility so that you can get a sense of who you're working with. Can you succeed in that situation? I mean, if you, by personality type and working style, are a find a way or make one kind of person, yes. But everything comes with a price. Right. And so the probability is high that if you are in a small organization and you do not have support staff to be able to help you to take on some of that work, that you are going to be overworked and you run the risk of not being able to carry out the different responsibilities you have with excellence. You're just going to be just fighting to make it through another day. And how long can we do that for? Is there any way, so you're a quarterback and you don't have, and you have an MVP who's, who's basically said, you know, you should do more running plays. You know, you should, don't, don't throw me the ball. You can just take it. Can I be successful? Is there anybody else I can throw the ball to? Where does the board fit in? So I think that's when being able to have good relationships with the board and that the board understands their charge. I think those two things have to go together. Everybody can't be just willy nilly because then no, you will not be successful. So I worked for an organization years ago where the executive, the CEO, executive director did not want to raise money that she did not see that as a responsibility or job. And the board didn't want to raise money. They were like, we raised money 10 years ago. It's still in the bank account. We don't need to do this again. And I was that's not the way any of this works. And so I had to create what I think was like a labyrinth of games and exercises to get board members and to get the executive team to start to raise money. It was exhausting. I lasted two and a half years. That was it. There is no question in my mind that it is very difficult for a development director to fuel up a board to get them into the invitation business, as you call it, if the executive director is not modeling that for them. Absolutely. I, I just, I think you can be the messiah of fundraising, but if the person who runs the show, the person who speaks at the gala, the person who has probably had an influence in recruiting you to that board, if they do not value fundraising, if they don't model it, I think it's a really uphill battle for a development director to be able to do, to work around that. And it's so hard. And I think that this is true. Maybe, maybe you'll agree. Kashana, we don't ask in any job interviews. We just don't ask enough good questions to the people 
that we're um, that are going to be our perspective supervisors, our perspective bosses, our perspective partners. There was a study not long ago that I read that said that 70% of a person's job satisfaction is tied directly to the person who manages them. Yep, I say that. 70%. Five times a week. 70%. 70%. Oh, you might have told me that number. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, it's one of my favorites. 70%. It's crazy. I mean, I I have a a 28-year-old daughter, and and she has the best boss. And she's about to get transferred. She works for, she's a case manager for a mental health organization in, in, uh, in Boston. She's about to get transferred. I said, I think there's, there's no question here, Kit. Wherever Claire goes, go with her. Yeah. Go with Claire. Wherever Claire's going, you can't go wrong go because, there. right, 70% of your job satisfaction is tied to the fact that you work for somebody wonderful. Isn't that crazy? It's and crazy. I always say to managers, we do all this work, job description. We have all these interviews. We do these exercises. We have onboarding if you do it right. And they need me to tell me after all of that, 70% of your success still rests with me. So I better get myself together. Totally. You know, <laughs> like, totally. and this is one why I focus so much on making sure that leaders are taking care of themselves, of their mental health, their emotional health, their physical health, their financial health. It is so important because so much of our organization's success rests on our ability to be able to model what it is like to be a dialed in leader and a thriving yeah, leader. Totally. And so it's so important. Um, and I'm not sure why in interviews, we don't allow enough time. Like interviews to me, if you're going to ask me seven questions, it really should be 90 minutes because I have five questions I would like to ask. And I think that we don't have that back and forth. Um, we spend a lot of time on surface questions about skills. Like if I picked your resume up and we did your screener, you're here because you can do the job. So at, at that point, we need to really be digging in to ensure that if we're going to think about are you going to be successful in this role? Are you going to be happy in this role? Will this get us to where we need to be in 18 months and 24 months? Beyond that, I think that that uh, we're not playing beyond that right now, y'all. To one day at a time, okay, people? And so I think if we are able to look at interviewing from that perspective, then we're able to have conversations. So I'll give you an example. I was talking to a client the other day about an interim opportunity for me to go in-house uh, with them. And through the course of us, those conversations, they were like, you know, Kashana, you could do this role with your eyes closed. But actually, over here is this other thing we've been thinking about that doesn't have a name yet. Can we talk about that? And that's not the first time that's happened to me in my no. career. That is because if you're willing to get into, to dig into the conversation, that means that the person who is the interviewee has to be courageous to say, Actually, I do have a couple of questions. I really want to go back to this thing that I said earlier. And I really would love to know, like, you just have to be able to do that exchange. And to note, if you're talking with an executive director, a search firm, the hiring team, and you don't get that space to be able to do that, that's also an indication of the environment you're going into. And if you're going to be successful. Agreed. One last question. All right. It's not a fill in the blank, not a multiple choice. I think at the end of the day, it's all about education and building a culture of philanthropy in your organization. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you think nonprofits can do a better job of educating both board and staff 
about the value of development, how it works, why it matters, and their role in it. Have, you know, it, just some, some thoughts about how do you build a culture of philanthropy in an organization so that the, fun, the development director as the quarterback really can make a whole bunch of different plays because actually everybody understands they're on that team. I love that question. So one of the ways that I've been able to do that in real time in seat is to insist that it's a part of the onboarding process for every team member who comes into the organization, regardless of what they do. Staff. Uh, yep. For the staff. That's just really, really critical that that is not just like a three slide thing we do, but that we actually talk about what it means and where money comes from. So in an organization that I joined where they were like, oh, well, the development team is going to do it. I decided to put together a roadshow and I talked to every single team about where money comes from because folks did not know. And bringing them into that conversation alone was enough for folks to go, oh, oh, so that's what I need to do to make sure that where the money comes from, come, the money comes? Yes. So I tied where the money comes from and their jobs together so that they could understand like this is actually how we're resourced to do our work so that we can activate mission. So I think organizations taking a step back and making that a part of their actual process of bringing team members into the conversations about their own work is a really, really key way to activate on a culture of philanthropy. And on the board end, to not let folks off the hook. Folks, oh, I'm not a fundraiser. This is not what that's about. Money is money. It's about building relationships. And your part of your job as a board member is to be an ambassador for this organization, which Uh means you better be doors so that we can ensure that we have a megaphone for activating our mission. And I think that those two things for me will help to build an active culture of philanthropy. So those are two tactical things. I like them. I like them a lot. So we are out of time. We're not out of things to talk about, but we are out of time. No. Uh, Kashana Palmer, uh, thank you very much for helping talk through this. I actually have every confidence that both EDs and development directors who are listening today found this super useful. And as always, every time we talk, I am energized and I learned something too. So thank you very much for joining us, Kashana. Thank you for having me. This is a continuing journey for for me and Kashana. Uh, Our conversations continue apace. Thank you for listening. And thank you for the work that you do to uh, repair the world in ways large and small. And we will see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.